Pastor John will be preaching this morning from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 14 through 18. And I invite you to follow along as I read. John 7, 14 through 18. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. The Jews marveled at it, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man's will is to do his will, he shall know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. He who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The question we are asking now in these four Advent messages is, how is the heart prepared to receive Christ for who he really is? And this week's text provides another part of the answer in addition to last week's answer from Matthew 16:17, The situation is that Jesus has just come up to Jerusalem to the Feast of Tabernacles and has put himself in the middle of the feast in the temple and begun to teach. Verse 15 shows the response that he gets. How is this man able to teach like this when he's had no formal training. That's the sense, I think, of these verses. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, their amazement is not an appreciative amazement because verse 19 says they're trying to kill him. So their amazement is an antagonistic and an angry amazement that he would presume as an unstudied Nobody to take the place of a rabbi and teach publicly in the central place of worship in the middle of Jerusalem. Who does he think he is? What right has he to speak in this way? Now, the answer Jesus gives is verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So Jesus denies presumption. It is not presumption. I'm not speaking my own words. I speak on behalf of the living God. Rabbis get their authority by being faithful to the law, by maintaining a tradition through other rabbis. I have authority and maintain it by having direct access to the lawgiver, more direct than you'd ever imagine. He's implying, I believe, in view of what we know elsewhere from the gospel, and so now a new question is on the table. How can they know whether this is so? How can we know whether this is so? He says, I'm speaking for God. I'm true. My words aren't mine. They come from heaven. They have authority. They're true. You have to bow before those words. How can his listeners know whether this is so? How can you know whether this is so? How can anybody in this city to whom you tell that news know whether this is so, verse 17, 
gives Jesus answer to that question. If any man's will is to do his will, that is God's will, the one who sent him, he shall know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own or from myself or on my own authority. How, how can you come to know, to have confidence, to have insight, to have assurance, to have recognition that Jesus is an authoritative spokesman from the living God to be trusted? Will the will of God. The condition of knowing is willing, according to verse 17. Now we have a new answer to our question. If to receive Jesus for who he is, we must recognize and acknowledge him as the one who speaks on behalf of God. And if in order to recognize and acknowledge him as the one who speaks on behalf of God, our will must be aligned with the will of God then now we know what preparation is necessary in order to receive Christ for who He is. Namely, a very deep change in our will before we even see Him for who He is. This is utterly crucial. This verse is so important. I can hardly overemphasize what this is teaching about the nature of conversion and genuine saving faith. To receive Christ, you must recognize Him for who He is, namely one who teaches the very Word of God with the authority of God. But John 7, 17 says, you'll never know Him as this. You'll never recognize Him as this. You'll never acknowledge this to be the case until the will is brought into line with the will of God. Now, notice what it is not saying. He's not saying that a certain kind of willing has to precede simply receiving Christ. That's true, and everybody knows it's true. That's not what this text is saying. Everybody knows you have to want to receive Christ to receive Christ. This text is saying something far deeper than that, it is saying there has to be a certain kind of willing before you can even know whether Christ should be received, whether he's worthy of being received. The issue in this text is knowing whether Christ is who he says he is so that then you can decide to receive him or not. This text is not saying merely that you have to want Jesus to receive Jesus. Of course you have to want Jesus to receive Jesus. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is you have to want your whole life to be shaped by the will of God before you can even see Jesus. It is a massive text concerning the preparation for receiving the living Christ. To paraphrase it, if anyone wills, 
wants, prefers, desires, to do the will of God, then and only then will that person be able to know the divine authority of Jesus and whether he is teaching God's word or his own private thoughts. So Jesus is saying the basic reason why people do not recognize and own up to my authority, he says, is not because they lack intellectual evidences of its truth, but because they rebel against my Father. The fundamental problem for why people resist Christ when He is displayed and offered freely in the Word of God is because they are antagonistic against the will of God in the root of their will. They are rebels against God. The great obstacle to recognizing Christ is not deficient resources, but deep rebellion against the authority of God in our lives. There is one text in this gospel that is a close parallel to this verse, 17. It's chapter 8, verse 44. I invite you to turn there with me. It is the converse, not the restatement, of this verse. And yet the point behind it is clearly the same, as you will see. Verse 43, Jesus asks the Jews who are rejecting him, Why do you not know what I say? Why do you not understand what I say? And then he answers his own question. It is because you cannot hear my word. What do you mean they can't hear your word, Jesus? They've got ears. They're standing right there in front of you. The, the sound waves are going in their ear, being processed by their brain, and you say they're not hearing. What do you mean they're not hearing? And if they're not hearing, how can they be responsible to respond to what they're not hearing? And he answers in verse 44, You are of your father the devil, and your will, here it is, your will is to do your father's desires. That's why you can't hear me. Now, do you see the connection between 717 and 844? 717 says, if you have a will to do God's will, you'll recognize the truth of Jesus and his teaching. Verse 44 of chapter 8 says, if you have a will to do Satan's will, you can't even Hear the word of Jesus. The same truth is being taught in both texts, namely, something's got to happen to our wills deep down in the root of them if we are ever to even recognize that Jesus has a claim on our lives. Let alone 
make the decision to receive Him having recognized Him. Something's got to happen to take away the antagonism of my will against God. Now, last week, you recall, I paired off a verse in Paul with a verse in Jesus. The verse in Jesus was, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven when He confessed Him as Christ. I paired off with it 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he cannot know them. I want to do the same thing right now to show you that Paul and Jesus are on the same wavelength again. The text is Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. You can look at it with me. It's important. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Paul is trying to account, just like Jesus is trying to account, why people reject the faith, reject Christ. And he says in verse 7 of Romans 8, the mind of the flesh is hostile toward God. Now, let's just stop there and ask what the mind of the flesh is. Verse 9, I think, makes clear what the mind of the flesh is. It says, uh, you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, people who are in the flesh, that is, have the mind of the flesh, are people without the Holy Spirit. Before the Holy Spirit invades your life, all you are is flesh. That's what we saw last week. That's what this text says. The mind of the flesh is the mind of man apart from the invasion of the Holy Spirit into his life. That's all of us before conversion. Every one of us has the mind of the flesh by our first birth. And this text says that the mind of the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, apart from the Holy Spirit, we are in our will Deeply, often unknowingly, antagonistic to the will of God and rebellious against His authority. We will not submit to His law. We will not acknowledge His rights as Creator over our lives while we have a mind of the flesh. And Jesus simply adds what I mean. Until your will becomes lined up with the will of God, you won't even be able to know, let alone submit to, the truth of the teachings of the Son of God. Can we be more specific what is it about Jesus Christ that causes a fallen will to recoil in blindness from it? Or what is it in my will that is so angry and so rebellious and so at odds with God that it pushes away Jesus Christ so much so that it protects itself through voluntary blindness? Verse 18 is the answer to that question in our text. John 7, verse 18. Jesus says, 
He who speaks on his own authority or from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of him who sent him, that's God, is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Now, this is remarkable. Verse 18 gives us a brand new criterion for judging the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, he says, if you want to know whether I'm true or not, take stock. As you look at my ministry, am I living for my own private glory or am I devoted to seek, delight and magnify the glory of my father in heaven? If the latter, I am true. If the former, I am false. Judge for yourselves. Am I true? Now, this is amazing because now we have verse 17 giving us one path to truth and we have verse 18 giving us another path to truth. And when you put those verses together, it is like a volcano of insight into the nature of conversion. Facts spill from this conjunction of these two points. Two facts and two conclusions. Let me mention them. Fact number one comes from verse 18. The truth of Jesus is shown or demonstrated by His commitment to seek God's glory, not His own private glory. The truth of Jesus is verified, demonstrated, and shown, he says, by the fact that his life is devoted to enjoying and magnifying the glory of God. Fact number two from verse 17. The rebellion of our fallen will makes us blind to this Jesus who lives like that. Conclusion number one. Therefore, the specific thing that our wills rebel against in the will of God is that His glory should be our quest and our passion rather than our own glory. You see that? The specific thing that our wills hate in the will of God is that God wills for His glory to be pursued above all other passions and all other quests. That's why we are antagonistic against God. And conclusion number two, therefore, the reason we can't see the truth of Jesus when our will is fallen is because he embodies the will of God that God's glory should be paramount in my life, not my own glory. It's just magnificent what comes from these verses. It's just stunning what we see here. The reason you and I, before something happens to our wills, cannot see Jesus, but rather blind ourselves to Him with our antagonism is because Jesus is the living embodiment of the will of God which we hate. Human beings hate to give God all the glory. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. You will be like God. You will be like God. Money, sex, power, prestige, our hearts go after anything but childlike dependence 
and enjoyment of the glory of our sovereign maker. This is a mighty text, brothers and sisters. There is so much here about you and me and why we struggle against the Almighty. I'm going to close by pointing you to John 5, verses 41 to 44. One last observation, and then we're done. This text is not an exact parallel, but you will see immediately as I start reading it, the same issues are at stake, the same point is being made, and therefore it's a deepening and a confirmation of what we've said so far. Jesus is responding to people who've rejected him. I'll read verses 41 and following. He says, I do not receive glory from men. In other words, I don't give a rip about being popular. But I know that you have not the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you'll receive. Why? Let's stop right there. Why? Can you answer that now? You all should be able to answer that if you're in tune with me. Why would the Jews readily embrace somebody who comes in his own name but will not embrace somebody who comes in Jesus' name seeking Jesus' glory? Answer? If somebody comes in their own name, they are an embodiment of what we love. Self-exaltation. They do not call us into question. They confirm our sin and our rebellion against the Almighty. Come, any Messiah who comes in His own name for His own glory. Sure, we'll team up with that because He won't call us into question. But come a Messiah who lives holy for the glory of God and vanishes into a tomb. We'll hate Him and blind ourselves to Him lest we have to be crucified with Him. And then comes verse 44. How can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You can't believe if you love the glory of men. Which is just another way of saying verse 17 of chapter 7. You can't see, you can't hear, you can't recognize, you can't receive, you can't believe. If your will is out of sync with God's will, whose will is that He be glorified and not us among men. I hope you see it. And I hope you want it. And I close with this admonition. Prepare your hearts to receive Christ this Christmas. That is, cultivate a love for the glory of God. If you wanted to cultivate a love for the glory of classical music, you would buy a stereo and some cassettes or discs or records and you would study music and you would associate with people who know music and you would listen, listen, listen. If you wanted to cultivate a love for the glory of the visual arts, you would study art. You would go to museums. You would hobnob with people who know and love art. And you would look, look, look. 
And if you wanted to cultivate a love for the glory of the night sky and the mastery and beauty of the solar systems and galaxies, you would buy a telescope and you would study astronomy and you would associate with people who know the skies and love the skies and you would go out night after night and gaze, gaze, gaze. And if you really give a hoot, about the glory of God and preparing your heart to be in sync with the living God that you might see, know, receive, believe on Jesus and be saved, you will study God. You will associate with people who love and see God. And you will day and night in His holy word gaze and gaze and gaze. Please, for your own soul's sake, for the glory of God, prepare to receive the King. Shall we stand?